But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is not here, but has risen. He is not here, he has risen. He is not here, but 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 he has risen. He is not here, but has risen. He is not here, but he has risen. He is not here, but he has risen. He is not here, but he has risen. He is not here, and has risen. He is not here, he has risen. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Johanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb and then over he saw the strips of women lying by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Good morning again, friends. If you are logging on with us uh, just now, again, wasn't that really a special video? I have to tell you, it was really sweet for me to watch it being compiled, to get all those videos sent back from you. Thank you for those who read the passage this week and sent it to us. It is, it's like cope, it's like a medicine to my soul to be able to see your faces today. But it's also kind of painful because it's Resurrection Sunday. Happy Resurrection Sunday to you all. The, on a day like this, of all days, we should be able to hug and high five. We should be able to uh, gain some comfort and even excitement from the voices filling the room. We should be able to welcome uh, old friends and to celebrate at new faces. On Resurrection Sunday, of all days, we should be able to do all those things. Yet, even so, I can't help but be a little bit electrified even today. It's this is, after all, the Super Bowl for a Christian Easter Sunday. I need now, more than ever, I think, Easter. Are you like me? I need a clear hope of resurrection to break into the buzzing static of my anxiety and apprehension. Maybe you're like me and you're ready to give up on the doom surfing and going to one more news article after another and, and shout back actually to dark in certain times that he is risen. He is risen indeed, friends. So whether you're sitting on your bed in your sweatpants or you're in a three-piece suit in your living room, I hope you're ready to celebrate with me. Because today, even for one day, we are going to refuse to despair. We are going to give ourselves fully to hope instead of fear. 
Not because we are blind to the times at all, but because we know, friends, who walked out of that grave. He is risen, friends. He is risen indeed. But before I get a bit too excited, can I just be honest with you? Can we be honest with each other for just a second? Did Easter catch you by surprise today? Maybe you spent the morning scrambling, trying to figure out how to make this morning a bit special for the family, or at least a little bit normal. Maybe you haven't shaved in a while, let alone showered in a while. You probably should look into that. You maybe just clicked here this morning because it was better, to be honest, than another news article or another Netflix episode. To be honest, I have to tell you, I hate the fact that I have to start mowing my lawn again. Do you understand what I mean? It's like the world marched straight into spring with uh, calloused and indifferent to the fact that the pause button has been pressed on so many other things in our lives. Still, many of us are just plum exhausted. Maybe you just got off of a long shift taking care of way too many freaked out people. You're not sure you can spend one more day on your feet taking temperatures, delivering packages, or stocking shelves. Maybe you're just a nervous wreck right now. You're waiting for the news that somebody in your house might have this terrible, this, this terrible uh, virus, or maybe you've gained the news that someone does. Maybe you've even suffered a death, to be honest. Are you left wondering to yourself, can it really be Easter? Well, it turns out that the first Easter wasn't exactly looked for either. Only a handful that day believed it was even possible that day, and others, uh, they openly rejected the news. And so I think in times like these, perhaps more so than ever before, we might come to understand not only what the first Easter was like, but we might come to understand the real heart of Easter. We might actually come to hope in the real hope of Easter. Perhaps just, perhaps we might begin to see the empty tomb, not as just some well-worn cliche, not some children's tale that is cheesy and pleasant, but expires tomorrow, but is something that is, as the first century understood it, as the very first Easter was understood, as something jarring and strange, as something interrupting, and yet something very real, as hope unlooked for in dark and difficult times. He is risen, friends. So would you turn with me to Luke chapter 24? If you don't have a Bible, we have on this portal ways for you to uh, be able to see the scripture that we're referencing today. There's also great apps on your phone like Version or the ESV Study Bible app. We would be happy to send you a paper copy of a Bible as well if that would be helpful to you. But we are going to look at how the first Easter, again, in Luke chapter 24, was received. And we're going to look so in three parts, or actually three contrasts. Looking versus seeing, number one. Seeing versus understanding. And three, understanding versus believing. Let's start with the first of these. Looking versus seeing. Now, if you would look back again to verses one through three, I want you to picture the events with me. One day and two nights have passed since Jesus was strung up on a cross as he was stripped naked, covered in blood, sweat, and spittle. 
struggling for breath as the people who once praised him as their king turned their faces away now in shame. Only then to die in an outcry. The end of what many thought would have been their final vindication. They thought this, after all, would have been their king who would have brought an end to their enemies. So with Jesus' end came the end of hope itself. Can you imagine what it was like for those who watched it all take place? It seems that many of his followers, including his closest friends, have huddled themselves into the same room where they ate their last supper together. What do you think they talked about in those days? Wondering how it all could have ended this way, furious at how one in their number could have betrayed them without anybody noticing what was going on, confused at why Jesus did so little to stop it. They figured at least Jesus would have gone down fighting. Maybe even more ashamed that they had so easily abandoned him at the hour of his greatest need and afraid that Jesus' enemies might come knocking at their door next. A small group of women, however, decide to venture out as soon as the Sabbath had passed. Unlike many, they had remained with Jesus at Golgotha until Jesus had taken his final breaths, until the nails were pulled, until his flesh was peeled back from those timbers, until the broken body was taken to a donated chamber for a hasty burial. It seems that this hurried process had pained them. Watching as Jesus was hurriedly prepared, hastily wrapped in linen with whatever spices they had on hand, eager to get on to Sabbath, it seems that it was a worse cruelty to leave the body as it was, so hastily and underprepared. And so at the first glimmers of dawn, with just enough light for them to make their way, they went back to the tomb. Even though the decaying body would have smelled something horrible, they were going to finish the preparation, a last act of love for the one that they had lost. The Gospel according to Matthew tells us that along the way they wondered to one another how they would remove the great stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb. You see, tombs in this day uh, could have been um, and were in this case sealed with a stone that would have been rolled in front of it, resting in a small ditch, something that would have been impossible for these women to remove on their own. Perhaps they would request the help of the Roman guard stationed there. Um, assuring that they had only come to care for the body, not to steal it away, only then to see the tomb, and even in the tricky light of the morning, see that the stone had been removed. There stood the dark entryway open. Notice that their immediate response isn't rejoicing, it's confusion, it's perhaps even fear. Especially as they go to the tomb, and they go inside, and they they cannot find the body of Jesus. Have you ever had that moment where you've re- uh, realized you've lost something precious? Um, it's caught you by surprise. I remember my wedding ring I took off uh, uh, just a few weeks ago to work out, and um, I realized later that afternoon that it was no longer on my finger, and it was as if my stomach dropped. And in panic, I started looking everywhere. You can imagine even worse for these women as they look and their stomach drops as they see that there is no body in the tomb. Had thieves broken in, but there was no reason for them to do so? Had the authorities taken that body somewhere else, a final act of cruelty? When like lightning into the darkness of the tomb, two men appeared, strange 
and shocking in their glory. Frightened, the women fall to the ground. The whole circumstance wasn't so much sweet as it was terrifying. Yet the angels that were there, of course, these were angels. They don't begin with a word of comfort or a happy announcement, simply a question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? I love this question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? You see, we all have something in common with these women. Before we go on, you need to know that I am ridiculously forgetful. Maybe some of you men can empathize with this, but have you ever been looking for something and looking for that object for a while, only then to give up in anger? I'll never find it. And then it takes all but five seconds for your wife or girlfriend to find it. This has happened maybe once or twice in our house, and it's made my wife exasperated, to say the least, as she uh, shakes her head in disbelief. It was right in front of your face. Were you even looking? The issue is, though, is that not that these women aren't looking. The angels, though, assume that the women are looking for the wrong thing. They are looking for a dead man. They've given up hope, and it would seem they have every reason to. They, after all, saw him die, and death is final. You don't get any more final than death. Death is the point that you give up hope. In a sense, their confusion is the right response. Have you found yourself ever without hope? You may even have good reason to have lost that hope. In fact, we would say a mature and a reasonable person should not believe everything is going to be okay in their lives simply because they believe it hard enough, simply because they have enough faith, no matter what the secret tells you. The belief that inner positivity or stubborn optimism can change the world or change the circumstances of our lives is not certainly a Christian belief. It's certainly not a Christian belief. So why does then the angel rebuke the woman? Why does he say that they should be looking for a living man instead of a dead one? It's because Jesus isn't like anyone else. And even now, these women expect him to be. Though they are looking at an empty tomb, the angels say that they need to now see what this tomb means. Here is the hinge point of history. From now on, there will be before Jesus and there will be after Jesus. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the firstfruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door which has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. Here, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the beginning of the end of everything sad. Even the iron grip of death will not grip anymore. It will be broken. Not because we simply believe hard enough. Not simply because we are optimistic about our lives. But because the Lord Jesus indeed has been raised from the dead. Verse 6, he is not here, but he has risen. The women are looking, but now they need to see. This leads to our second contrast. Seeing 
verse understanding. You know, I have met many people who do not consider themselves to be Christians, yet nonetheless believe that Jesus really died and perhaps even rose again. Well, I don't have time to go into all the historical and literary evidence for both the crucifixion and the resurrection. I have to tell you, the evidence is fairly staggering. Even many secular scholars and historians would agree with philosopher William Lane Craig, who lists four of the main historical facts that everyone needs to grapple with. Fact number one, after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb. Again, these are well-established facts that historical evidence lends itself to. Fact number two, on the Sunday after the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. That's what we're reading about in our passage. Fact number three, on different occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. Fact number four, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. William Lane Craig argues from these four facts that the most likely explanation to them is that Jesus indeed rose bodily from the dead. Not just rose spiritually, but that that body walked from the grave. And I, I agree. However, there is an even more important reason to believe in the resurrection than the historical evidence. And it has to do with what the angels add in the remainder of verses 6 and 7. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Surely these women had heard Jesus' predictions along with the rest of the, the disciples, but perhaps they assumed Jesus was being a little too hard on himself, a little bit too pessimistic about his future. Maybe Jesus needed to believe in himself a bit more. Or maybe they figured the teacher was waxing eloquent again. Oh, it's one of those parables again. Yet there are some today who still insist on seeing the resurrection again as some sort of mystical metaphor, a symbol for meaning and hope in life, a symbol of never giving up. This is even popular among some who would consider themselves Christians. After all, we don't expect supernatural power to actually break into our everyday. Bodies only walk from the grave in our horror movies. But notice the wording here. It's not simply that the Son of Man, another name for Jesus, would be betrayed, crucified, and rise, as if Jesus was simply a kind of prophet or a fortune teller. No, it is that he must be betrayed, crucified, and on the third day rise. It's fascinating. The angels assume that neither the cross nor this empty tomb should have been a surprise to anyone. It was something Jesus, in fact, must do. This matches Jesus' own words about what was coming to him, which the angels are referring to in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. The Son of Man, Jesus is speaking, must 
suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I mentioned before that there are many who would concede that the crucifixion and maybe the resurrection happened. But I have to tell you that even belief that the crucifixion and resurrection happened is not all that distinctly Christian. You see, it's possible to believe and agree that these events occurred. But then to assume and that the cross is some sort of grand accident, a tragic martyrdom of another visionary before his time, or maybe a picture of what it looks like to carry your beliefs all the way to the end. But when the Christian looks at Jesus, they take Jesus at his word. That these events are nothing less than the design of God. That these events were, in fact, the purpose Jesus came to accomplish and was working toward with every step that he took. In fact, every step was a step, in a sense, toward Golgotha. Jesus understood that we don't just need a bit more security in our lives. The strange assumption of the Bible is not that we just need a bit more self-esteem. It's not even that we need a stable sense of meaning, a reassurance that it's all going to be okay. We need resurrection. You see, the Bible assumes that all of us, even though we are walking and breathing, are spiritually dead. We are dead men and women walking. The Bible assumes that our state spiritually is that we do not have friendship with God, and because we do not have God, we do not have life at all. It's only that that death has yet to be sealed in full, that all of us have a ticking time clock to our lives until that death is made final. And unless there is an interruption, unless resurrection can happen, which does not come from within, that death will take its toll. And so Christ came and lived. He didn't just live and teach us important things. He lived a kind of life I should have lived. Why? So that he could die a death I should have died in order that the life he now lives would be mine as well. That this dead man, and this dead man I mean, I, I, I was not alive I, before Christ. I did not just figure this out on my own. I was not more moral or intellectual. I was not one who would have come to God on my own at all. Instead, God interrupted me, and this dead man, he caused my heart to beat within my chest. He caused the breath to fill this stubborn man's lungs. He caused light to bring to my eyes The crucified yet living Christ brings life. He brings spring to a winter that was eternal, at least it seemed to be. And that winter will never come again. And yet it is important for us to know not only did Jesus give us life, that though that is certainly what he won, it's important to know that he gives us life because he gives us the author of life. What hope do we have that justice, peace, security, even joy are coming? 
Because we now have God himself, and that is our supreme need, friends. You want to know why Jesus died? You want to know why Jesus rose from the dead? It was to give us God, the object of our heart's desire, the one we most need. The reason we come to God, the hope of heaven, the hope of resurrection, is God himself. And every step from his grave then preached to the world that sinners had been forgiven, enemies reconciled. The compromisers cleansed, the debtors pardoned, the sick saved, the slaves released, and the lost found. Because Jesus walked out from that grave, more are soon to follow him. But this leads to our final contrast. Number three, understanding verse believing. Our story goes on at this point, having remembered the words I was still more afraid at the events than excited. The women bring the strange news to the apostles. And the uh, disciples, of course, they rejoice. They shout, we knew it. He's alive. Did you hear it? He's alive. And then they grab the women. They throw them onto their shoulders and they carry them singing hymns on the way to the tomb. That's not exactly right, is it? Verse 11 tells us, But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Let's remind ourselves, these were Jesus' closest friends. For three years, they walked with Jesus, they ate with Jesus, they were taught themselves by Jesus. They were more likely than anyone else to remember his words. So why do they doubt? Well, unfortunately, it seems at least there's a great deal of, of sexism behind their skepticism. You see, among many at the time, the witness of women, the testimony of women, unfortunately, was considered worthless. Women in the first century were seen as unstable and undependable. This certainly, I have to tell you, is not the Bible's posture towards women. The Bible could not be more dignifying of women despite popular assumption. This kind of posture, the sexism, is inexcusable, but sadly historically common even today. But it turns out that these details of the women's testimony and the fact that it was rejected by the apostles actually lends great, greater, account, greater credibility to the gospel's account here. After all, if these events were invented, if these were invented to give some credibility to this newfound Christian faith, why in the world would Christianity present women as the first witnesses of the resurrection when cultural prejudice at the time was so aligned against them? Why would they, in fact, refer to the the pillars, the strongest teachers and leaders of the early church, as the ones who first rejected that same resurrection? Why would they include details so potentially destructive to Christianity's credibility? Why wouldn't they clear the egg from Christianity's face unless these events were actually true? But this aside, I think we would say that doubt is something we all can understand. In fact, we are in an age where doubt comes easier than faith. Faith, in fact, takes more work today than it ever has, and even many Christians carry, in some measure, a measure of doubt. Certainly, 
Some of these doubts are intellectual in nature. Christianity seems to openly contradict our naturalistic assumptions. It deals in matters beyond what we can uh, see, taste, and touch. After all, the claim here is that something we have all assumed is quite permanent. Death itself isn't quite so permanent at all. Some of our doubts are emotional, though. Our wounds and our unanswered questions have left us bitter, maybe toward God himself. When we most hoped God would come through for us, he didn't. How could a loving God allow something so hard, so unexplainable, so evil in your life? After all, you don't get more cruel and evil than the events that led up to Christ's own death. Still, I fear some of our doubts are prejudicial. We don't trust Christian claims because we don't trust the messenger they come from. We've known too many religious people who have been self-righteous and hypocritical, closed-minded, or we might say at least a bit too heavenly-minded for earthly good. Like the disciples, we disregard Christian claims because of the Christian that is making them. And finally, some of our doubts are in fact religious. You see, Jesus breaks our categories of how we understand God. He says that we cannot come to be close to God simply by following the rules. In fact, many rule followers are in need of forgiveness. That many who think they are close to God aren't close to God at all. In fact, the ones who are the real mess-ups, the ones who have squandered their life, are the ones who are actually have more potential of understanding their need and actually coming to hope in the hope of Christ. The ones who least deserve it are often the ones who find it. All paths don't actually lead to God. Only one does, and it is through Jesus. These doubts, they may be intellectual, emotional, prejudicial, religious, or something else. But still, my point, again, is that all of us carry in some measure a measure of doubt. In fact, a a faith that has never had to work through its doubts is, in fact, an immature one. But still, we respond to doubt in different ways. Some, like Mary and Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, we find it easier to believe, even to celebrate these claims. We come to them quicker, Faith comes perhaps easier to you, and you can't wait to share this good news with others. You need to hear the comfort from me, that that is not a trite or, or a limited, it's not a, it's, not a, it's not a subpar faith at all. It's not kind of alternative or faith-light. But we, again, need to say that for some, faith just comes a little bit easier. Well, for others, like the disciples, they openly disbelieve. It seems... All these things are an idle tale, as our, as our passage puts it, utter nonsense. And these don't just doubt, they refuse to believe. Maybe your life makes sense the way that it is. Maybe you've accumulated your reasons and just enough surefire arguments to keep Christianity at bay. You convince yourself you've been there, you've done that, you've bought the t-shirt. But then, there are some of us who are, well, somewhere in the middle. A bit like Peter. And we're left wondering. 
We're left wondering, what if? One of my friends, just this last year, was in this place. You see, he had heard it all, he was convinced. And since then, he had grown up, he had matured, and he'd left that childish religion behind him, as so many do today. In fact, he had since then given himself to tearing that same faith down, collecting arguments against this faith that he was so convinced he had already left behind. And then, foolishly, he began reading the Bible. At first, he began in order to gather more proof that this religion really was as ridiculous as he assumed it was, only to find himself quite accidentally, and I mean quite accidentally, doubting his own doubts, wondering if this all could be true. He became captivated, you see, by Christ and the clear transformation Jesus brought upon those who followed him until it was his disbelief that he was disbelieving. George MacDonald put it, puts it this way, A man may be haunted with doubts and only grow thereby in faith. Doubts are the messengers of the living one to the honest. They are the first knock at the door of things that are not yet, but have to be understood. They are the first knock at our door of things that are not yet, but have to be understood. Friend, if you are left like Peter, wondering, let me encourage you to follow that haunting sense. To ask to your doubt, what if? To say to God, God, where might you be leading me? What if this might all be true? In fact, the true joy of this passage is not that we are all left to figure it out on our own. The true joy of this passage is not that we are left to hopelessly feel our way to God if we can. It's not that we are left to try and weigh the options and consider the claims and, and, and jump forward in blind faith. It is that the risen Christ interrupts the doubters and the disbelievers. He reveals himself to the ones who are not looking for him at all. Again, hear that from me. The hope of the risen Christ is that the risen Christ and his resurrection interrupts the doubters and disbelievers. That Jesus himself knows us so well that he reveals himself to the ones who aren't even looking for him. And maybe, just maybe, that's you. Will you see? Will you understand? Will you believe? In closing, hear this quote from C.S. Lewis. I couldn't put this challenge any better myself. What are we to make of Christ? There is no question of what we can make of him. It is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must accept or reject the story. The things he says are very different from what any other teacher has said. Others say, this is the truth about the universe. This is the way you ought to go. But he says, I am the truth and the way and the life. He says, no man can reach absolute reality except through me. Try to retain your own life and you will inevitably be ruined. Give yourself away and you will be saved. 
He says, if you're ashamed of me, when you hear this call, you turn the other way, I will look the other way when I come again as God without disguise. If anything, whatever is keeping you from God and from me, whatever it is, throw it away. If it is your eye, pull it out. If it's your hand, cut it off. If you put yourself first, you will be last. Come to me, everyone who is carrying a heavy load. I will set it right. Your sins, all of them, are wiped out. I can do that. I am rebirth. I am life. Eat me. Drink me. I am your food. And finally, do not be afraid. I have overcome the whole universe. That is the issue. Again, what are we to make of Christ? As C.S. Lewis says, there is no question of what we can make of him. It is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. We must accept or reject the story. What about you? Friend, if you are not a believer, I want to appeal to you again. I am so glad that you chose to log on today. Chances are you need more time to make sense of Christian claims. Chances are you come with a lot of doubts that still need to be worked through. I would encourage you to log back on with us every Sunday, and in fact, especially when we get back in person, to make yourself a part of this church where you are so welcome. But even now, if you even have an inkling of wondering, if you, like Peter, are wondering what if, Allow, to see, allow God to take this where he will. Allow yourself to see where this will go. And today, if you are ready, if you are ready to turn upon him and confess, not only the resurrection and the crucifixion are real and happened, but they were necessary for your sake because you were a dead man, a dead woman, and now you need life, and only life can come through him. If you are willing to say that to rest upon Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and find life in him instead and in place of death, knowing that only hope awaits you, even in dark and despairing times, I can tell you today that that faith works for you. You do not have to clean up your life. All you have to do is confess that God, what he says about your life is actually true and that what Jesus accomplished actually worked and you are his forever. You have the, the life and light of your salvation because you have God himself and there is only hope for you. Friend, would you do that today? We have a couple prayers um, that are listed in the comments section merely to help you guide in your time in talking to God. Those prayers do not save you. God is the one who saves you, but they help you in talking to him, especially if that's foreign to you. If you're praying those prayers for the very first time today, I want to know, would you let me know? Would you contact me directly? Even after service, I want to pray and celebrate with you and help you walk, more importantly, in obedience to Christ to walk into this life in which you stand. And if you are a Christian, today of all days, would you shout back to the dark, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Would you identify even now who needs this good news and would you be the one who explains it to them? On Easter of all days, we have reason to hope and in times like these of all times, 
We need it more than ever. Would you pray with me in closing? Lord, where else would we go than you? You have the words of life. Lord, we, uh, we do not come to you as those who are searching. We are looking for the wrong thing. We're looking for a dead man. And we need to look for one who is raised. Thank you for interrupting me and, that, and those Christians who are watching this day for interrupting them. No matter where they're coming from, no matter what track record they come with, none of us can offer you anything except for our praise. You've taken dead people and woken them up to life. Would we walk in that life, especially now? And would you do as you only can do is save more? Would you raise more to this new life? Would you open more eyes to the truth? Would you cause more to say, in spite of their doubt, this one thing is real and true? Lord, would they place their trust upon Jesus Christ and find him to be more good, more beautiful and true than anything else they've ever hoped on in their entire life? We pray on this Easter Sunday, in light of the one who was dead and now raised, Jesus Christ, our crucified yet reigning King. Amen.